I'm Gary Knoll. This is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Our theme today, a debate, um, a differences of opinion between Heather McDonnell, a political and social commentary and attorney, uh, graduated from Stanford Law School and Yale University and, and Cambridge University, and her position on the problems we're having uh, in the inner cities, in the major cities, and we have different perspectives, uh, but I believe in civil debate and discussion. And I'm concerned because we're not having enough open civil discussion on our differences. We have too many people willing to say, my ideology is right and yours is wrong. They're not parsing anything. Maybe some things we should re-examine, refocus on. That's what we're going to do today. I think you'll find it an interesting discussion. Now to my guest. Thank you so much for having me on, Gary. One of the things I noticed, and you'll have to explain whether or not this is by choice or by exclusion, is I don't see people who share a contrary point of view inviting you on for open debate. And I would think, as articulate as you are, and as the information you bring to debate, that that would make an interesting discussion. We could watch this and agree that some or none or all of what is being shared by either person is a value. But instead, I don't see that. Could you explain if that's something I'm just not seeing? Or are you invited onto programs with difference of opinion and allowed an opportunity in a civil manner to share your points of view? Well, I think the last time I was invited onto a uh platform with a, you know, in the aggregate different point of view was after the release of my book in 2016, The War on Cops, which talked about the what I called the first Ferguson effect, which was the fact that officers were backing off of proactive policing across the country in the wake of the riots that broke out initially in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, following the shooting of Michael Brown, uh, those riots based on a completely phony narrative about police racism and, and about the shooting itself, that even the Obama Justice Department completely eviscerated the whole hands up, don't shoot lie. And my book was about the fact that under this phony charge of systemic racism, police officers across the country were deciding that they were not going to engage in discretionary proactive policing. They were simply driving by somebody who's hanging out on a corner at 2 a.m., hitching up his waistband as if he has a gun, uh, because they didn't want to get in any possible confrontation that could lead to the media charging them with racism, uh, putting their jobs in jeopardy. James Comey, the uh, FBI director, talked about the Ferguson effect. He said, you know, geez, this is a real problem. Violence is going up and cops are backing off of the essential policing to, that they need to do in order to save lives overwhelmingly in the black community. The Chicago mayor, Rahm Emanuel, said that the Chicago cops had gone fetal because of the Ferguson effect. So I brought out this book 
called the war on cops and it turned out to be very well timed because in the summer of 2016 in july uh five dallas police officers were assassinated in cold blood by a black nationalist motivated by anti-cop hatred so this seemed to kind of confirm the title and the thesis of the book which was that a poisonous anti-cop narrative had taken hold of the national media of elite institutions and was actually putting cops lives at risk so i was invited on to cnn uh right after this assassination of police officers it was a friday night and they had set me up to speak at a, one of their shows on saturday morning but before that happened uh they simply canceled the invitation so that was in 2016 and since then i have not been invited back on the more lib liberal leaning cable shows like cnn or channels cnn or msnbc i have been invited to speak at uh universities but my my hosts are always conservative groups and i have experienced uh a absolute tsunami of closed-mindedness of narcissism of student mob behavior trying to shut me down i was uh invited to speak at claremont mckenna college which is a small liberal arts college in southern california on the periphery of los angeles again to speak about the question is there in fact an epidemic of racially biased uh, shootings of black men by police officers and the students there blockaded the auditorium in which i was going to speak to make sure that nobody could get inside to hear me uh, i spoke to an empty room i it was recorded but at some point, the police detail decided it was no longer safe for me to be there because the students were outside pounding on the plate glass windows. So I was hustled out the back through a kitchen and into a waiting police car and taken to the police station in Claremont, where I went back down to Irvine, California. So, no, I have not experienced much open mindedness uh, on the part of certainly on the part of students and on the part of the media. I'm going to ask a larger overarching question, but also I'm going to share some of my own perspective in here, if you don't mind, and then please take any part of what I'm sharing and give me your arguments or counter arguments. Um, a lot of my friends are police officers and have been. Many of them, in fact, two in 24 years, never drew their gun. They looked to de-escalate situations. We had more or less about 900,000 police officers in the United States. Clearly, historically, there has been bias and prejudice against minorities, uh, against the poor in our judicial system. If you're wealthy enough, you can be treated differently. If you're politically connected enough, you can have that as well. So my argument is don't blame the cop on the beat unless they are known for being violent, known for being short-tempered, known for being biased, and therefore more prone to committing a crime against someone. But why not just change the entire judicial system where it is unfair, where it is demonstrably unfair, and therefore have a more fair system? So my biggest issue is, let's, let's look at institutions, not just individuals controlling an institution at a given time. 
the idea that we could defund the police and did so in Ferguson and in in uh, other communities around the United States, including in Portland and including in Seattle, then suddenly there's an increase in crime because what no one seems to be talking about is not your average person. Your average citizen in the United States, no matter what political party they belong to or what ideology or religion, they're basically decent human beings. I have found I have faith in the average person. I also have faith that the average person wants to do well for themselves, their family, their community. They're not inherently racist. And yet we only pay attention to those who are the extremists, have the most extreme views, instead of those who have more moderate views or more conciliatory views. Now, I loved going to San Francisco. I love the culture. I love the architecture. And I on my book tours from the 1960s right through uh, today, it was been one of my primary joyful places to go. If you've been on tour, you know there are things you like to do on tour and things you don't like to go. But it was one of those things where I could take a break and go for a walk and enjoy it. Today, that's not the case. How did that happen? That didn't happen because of racism. didn't happen because of economic disparity. It happened because you provide an opportunity for those who are intent on doing harm, the most extreme examples within a society, and they will take advantage of it. Shoplifting, that's how it started. And then not resting the shoplifters. So I'm suggesting that maybe we should stop for a moment with all the political arguments and all the slurring of, of basic decency in communicating uh, and say, what is the real underlying problem? And why don't you start with the average person and ask them, What's wrong? What do they suggest? But we're not going to the average person. We're going to people who don't live in those neighborhoods, who are not going to be victims, who have armed guards. We go to the elite to answer questions that are primary and primordial to the average working person. So I can't blame the police in total. So why should we always use the exception to the rule to make that the object of the rule? Why not just say these are exceptions? These are bad cops. They shouldn't be cops. And why don't we start to look at what we can do to bring conciliation, cooperation, community working together? That's my biggest concern on that issue. Could you address that, please? <laughs> address that? Uh, you've made about 100 excellent points. I don't know if I can get to them, if I'm going to remember them all. Uh, first of all, I would say quite obviously that America was systemically racist. It was a white supremacist society. It was an apartheid society. America treated blacks with heartbreaking cruelty and contempt, gratuitous uh, despising for centuries of its history in violent, flagrant contradiction to its founding ideals. All the time it was going around lecturing the rest of the world about how committed it was to equality. Those were the realities. To that extent, the 1619 Project is right. In the past, we were a white supremacist society. That is not the case today. Uh, that is simply not the case today. The reality is black privilege, not white privilege. There's not a single mainstream institution that is not going out of its way to hire and promote as many blacks as possible. The police were an absolute linchpin of that white apartheid system uh, in the South, but beyond, even in the North as well. We, we tend to forget that the North was in many ways as exclusionary and as cruel towards Blacks 
uh, as the South was, although I have to say by the 1950s, the South was in its sui generis in terms of just sheer racial hysteria. Um, so I can be quite honest about this country's past, and it's understandable uh, in the Black community to have a legacy mistrust of the police, although I would say that at some point, as decades pass, uh, there's not many people around with memories that go back to the Jim Crow era. Uh, you're absolutely right, Gary, that when the police back off, the result is absolutely predictable. It is loss of black lives. Uh, we saw in 2020 the largest single year increase in homicide in this nation's history, 29%. You're a doctor, you know statistics, you know that a 29% change in any area is statistically completely off the charts. And the victims in that 29% increase in homicide were overwhelmingly black. At this point, black juveniles are shot at 100 times the rate of white juveniles, 100 times. That is the civil rights issue that the left should be caring about. Those include children, toddlers gunned down in their backyards, in their beds, in their front yards, at birthday parties, on trampolines, in their parents' cars, all black children. We are told that we have to say the names of black victims. That is a fraud. The only black victims that the left cares about are the very few who are shot by police officers, almost none of the rise in black homicide deaths since the George Floyd race riots and the mass psychosis that took over this country, no, almost none of those additional black victims were taken by the police or by whites. They were all killed by other blacks. And for that reason, the nation turns its eyes away, refuses to talk about it. We do not say the names of say, Jaslyn Adams, a seven-year-old who was shot while riding in her father's car in Chicago uh, by gang members. Nobody knows her name, but we all say the names of the thugs George Floyd and Michael Brown and, and Dante Wright. Uh, the reason that we have these prosecutors deciding not to prosecute laws and liberal police chiefs deciding not to enforce laws against shoplifting, against trespassing, against disorderly conduct, against most horrifically resisting arrest, uh, arrest, which is the death knell of law and order. If you tell the public that they can legitimately resist arrest and they will not get punished, the reason for this insane situation of deprosecution, decriminalization, deincarceration is all due to one thing and one thing only, Gary, disparate impact. If you enforce the law in today a colorblind fashion, and I disagree with you that our criminal justice system is systemically class biased, I disagree. We have, I think, one of the fairest criminal justice systems in the world. I would not put out that message that we have some kind of favoritism towards the rich above the poor. I, I, I do not see evidence of that. Admittedly, this is something I've not looked into. What I have looked into is is the criminal justice system at this point biased against blacks and i can answer that unequivocally it is not the studies that have been done show that if anything blacks are under prosecuted for felony crime compared to their actual rate of crime commission but the reason that we have the george 
Soros-funded DAs, whether it's George Gascon in Los Angeles or Alvin Bragg in New York, Kim Fox in Chicago, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, not enforcing the law is because if they do so, they will have a disparate impact on black criminals, not because the law is racist, but because blacks commit crime at rates that are equally elevated to the rate of black victimization. Those those black juveniles who are shot at 100 times the rate of white juveniles, it's because blacks are committing gun crime at 100 times the rate of white juveniles. And we have simply decided that we would, we're throwing in our lot with black criminals rather than black victims. It's a bizarre choice. The left-wing activists have decided they're going to keep blacks out of prison because of mass incarceration. The reason blacks are in, in prison at, 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 a, at a disproportionate rate is because they commit black, they commit crime at a higher rate, but they'd rather side with the criminals than with those black children who are getting gunned down in these barbaric and insane drive-by shootings. I will, I will offer a difference of opinion on this issue and that for years, a stop and search in New York and other cities was disproportionate to people of color. And thank goodness there was some attention drawn to that. But more importantly to me is why would people be committing crimes, whether they're Caucasian or any other color, in the numbers they are today? And we're not looking, in my opinion, at the underlying causes. And I'll give you an example. I did a documentary called Poverty, Inc., and I went into Camden, New Jersey, and you couldn't go in there. In fact, the police stopped me and says, you can't go down that street, all gangs. And I said, but that's where the story is. I went to a barber shop on the corner, and I said, I'm trying to share the point of view of the person living on this block with a gun who is in a gang. Can you make a call and let me get in there? And he did. And uh, I got in, and I spent the whole day with my camera crew, uh, talking with them. And I said, you weren't born a criminal. How did you become one? And they gave me their stories. And most of them didn't have fathers. Most of them grew up in poverty. Most of them grew up with a mother that was working two to three jobs. Most of them were around friends that were taking drugs. And I came up with this idea. What do you think of this? Why don't we stop fighting one another at the ideological level? Because neither side is going to give an inch. They're both going to say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And then and then comes the animus. Why not have a national program, a martial program to rebuild uh, and de-ghettoize America? Where in every community, it's not the federal government, but you have local people who are business own small businesses who've been there for a long time. They have a council, and you go in there. Now you have an opportunity to have the whole community working together. If you put five thousand new businesses into every community. You put 5,000 businesses in the five boroughs of New York, and they each employed five people. You brought a lot of people into that community. You brought money into that community. You're upgrading the quality of the community. And then you have state schools where people can go, or trade schools that are tuition-free. If a person wants to go to an Ivy League school, you went to an Ivy League school, two of them. Okay, you know that the Ivy League schools could, with their endowments, pay for all of your bills. They choose not to. But a state school could have free tuition, so as a result, you would not be left with student debt. And then you would have people say, don't take that career because artificial intelligence is not going to have you have a job there. They're going to take it. 
or automation. Now you've got communities starting to build from the inside with input from the people living there. And now you don't no longer have, at one time, a thriving community in Detroit, thriving community in Camden, New Jersey. And so we rebuild America from the inside and so that those kids can have help. And you get the homeless out of a city by building a community where you have clinics to help them with their drug addiction, with their mental illness, with their homelessness outside of the city, and then rebuild the city and bring people back so they can re rehabilitate. Home. By the way, Honduras is controlling virtually all the homelessness in San Francisco and Los Angeles. They supply the drugs, and in turn, you go out and do the stealing for them. They even charge those people rent on their tents. You wouldn't have that if you took a look. Do you want these homeless people staying in the city, defecating in the city, doing drugs in the city, hurting people in the city? Or do you want to put them in a place where they can actually get some help? And when they're able, you, being helped properly and humanely, then you can reincorporate them back into the city. Those are some suggestions. I'd like your thoughts, please. Well, I know about the Hondurans because I brought fentanyl from them. I wanted to see how easy it was to buy fentanyl uh, right outside the Golden Gate Law School. And uh, I was a first-time buyer, cash dealer, so I got a very good deal. I, um, it was, I was envied by a white guy that was on the, on the sidewalk because I wanted to know if I'd gotten the real thing. And he smelled it and said, yeah, that's the real thing. And he, I only paid like $16 for what turned out, I think, to be two grams. I was worried I would, how, how am I going to get through TSA? Uh, I called a, a San Francisco cop friend of mine and said, are they going to find this? And uh, he said, throw it out, throw it out before you go through the security check. And, uh, but I, I, wanted to, I wanted to keep my fentanyl trophy. So I kept it in my bag, my carry-on, which then was pulled off the luggage conveyor belt. And I thought, oh no, I'm screwed. But they were going after my, contraband lotion, which was over three ounces. And I got my um, fentanyl back, which is behind me now in a, in a shoebox in my Irvine apartment. <laughs> so yes, I mean, the, the Hondurans had a, the complete drug set worked out very well. Um, and uh, I totally agree with your argument and suggestion for dealing with homeless vagrants outside of cities. The idea that we're gonna spend $800,000 to build private subsidized apartments for every single vagrant on the street in the in the heart of a city is absolutely ludicrous. They should be outside on rural, abandoned industrial lands in a completely drug-free area uh, where they get clean, and only when they have been clean for a very long time uh, should they be put back into uh, an inner city. And uh, you know, with all the temptations that that holds. But the advocates want the vagrants on the street where they can serve as a living symbol of the alleged heartlessness of cal of, of capitalism. But let me return now to the, your, uh, again, long monologue with its many points. And you started by stating uh, that, in fact, stop and frisk, the stop, question and frisk tactics in the NYPD were racist because they were disproportionately uh, had black subjects. Well, let me ask you this, Gary. Uh, in New York City, blacks are 22% of the population. They commit each year anywhere between 71 and 75% of all drive-by shootings. How do we know that? That's from the victims of and witnesses 
uh, to those shootings who are themselves overwhelmingly minority themselves. Uh, whites are about 34% of the New York City population. They commit about 1% to 2% of all shootings in New York City. So Blacks, 22% of the population committing about three quarters of all shootings. Whites, over a third of the population committing less than 1% of all, of all shootings. Based on that, what do you think the ratio of stops should be for blacks and for whites? Should blacks be stopped at 22% of all stops, even though they commit 75% of all shootings? And should whites be 34% of all stops, even though they commit about 1% or at most 2% of all shootings? In fact, blacks make up a little over half of all stops in New York City. So they're actually, as Mayor Michael Bloomberg said when he was mayor, Blacks are understopped compared to their crime ratios. The police are not making stops on the basis of race. They are going where crime is happening, and they are looking for gangbangers who are engaged in suspicious behavior. And when they have re uh, grounds, legal grounds of reasonable suspicion to stop somebody, they're going to make that stop. Given these crime disparities, the big fallacy of the anti-cop left in claiming these racial disparities is to use population benchmark to compare police activity. So they will look at the 50% of blacks of stops that the NYPD make and compare that to the black population ratio, which is 22%. So yes, blacks are being stopped in New York at about twice the rate of the population, but that's the wrong benchmark. The right benchmark is what degree of crime are they committing? Because policing today above all in New York City is data-driven. The cops are simply going on a colorblind basis. I've been in CompStat meetings at the New York Police Department. They're not talking about race. On their maps, they have where are the robbery patterns breaking out? Where are the carjackings breaking out? The car thefts? And that's where they're deploying people. They don't want to be in the Black neighborhoods. They hope against hope that for once, somebody will give them a description of a white person who's committed a drive-by shooting, and it almost never happens. So I just do not accept your claim that stop-and-frisk data shows that the police were racist. As far as your claim that poverty. Uh, you made one, I think, extremely essential observation about what you saw in Camden in those high crime areas, which was the absence of fathers. If you want to ask me what the root cause is of inner city crime, it is the breakdown of the black family. You mentioned poverty, though. And sorry, Gary, I just don't buy that. Uh, the the All of these guys, these young kids that are conducting these insane drive-by shootings, they all have smartphones. Social media is the police's best friend because all these gangbangers are, are posting social media of themselves, throwing gang signs, throwing showing off their cash, their guns. I submit to you that somebody who has a smartphone is not poor in any rational definition of the term. Okay. Are, are these areas poor in social capital and family capital? Yes. Have we tried empowerment zones, 
you know, interest-free loans, trying to in encourage small business in inner cities. Yes, we have. Here's the problem. The people there, by and large, do not have the social capital to be good workers. We've seen illegal aliens from, from Hispanic countries. They come in and they find jobs. You know, I'm not in favor of legal immigration. I'm not in favor of mass immigration at all. But I have to say that the Hispanic immigrants provide a benchmark. The problem is lack of work ethic. It's not I, I, I agree with you, there's been deindustrialization, but the real problem here is breakdown of social capital above all fathers. Okay, let me offer you then a counter argument. When I look at a community, and I spend a lot of time in Detroit, I used to do PBS specials all the time out there. Uh, we had to drive on a certain route uh, to get to the studio. And I said, why don't we go around uh, the downtown area? They said, because there's smash and grab. You pull up to the streetlight, boom, they're going to come out. And I said, but there was a time in the, I think, 1953, where Detroit was one of the most prosperous cities in the United States, both within the African-American community and in the Caucasian community. These were working-class people. That was also true in Camden, where you had RCA, uh, RCA Victor that was made there. You had uh, Campbell's Soup that was made there. A lot of companies. Uh, and they were all in one area, and some of those signs are still there today, but the factory's been empty. I would, I would posit that you could take any city in the United States, and once you take away its capital, once you take away the jobs, and those jobs weren't taken away by the workers, those jobs were taken away by the equity partners and the people who saw there was an advantage taking over a company, maybe a company very profitable, been there for decades, and then offshoring it somewhere else. And that's exactly what happened. And that's why we saw the Rust Belt, because things can be made cheaper elsewhere. Well, what does that have to do with the family? If you have a family there, and I talk with everyone on that street, you're all very open to talk about it, because not everyone could get out of it, I get out of Canada. And they all said the same thing. There was a time when you didn't have crime. There was a time when you can walk down any street. But that's when we had work. So if you have work, and you're making a living wage, and you have uh, you have some protections, then you have a family because the family is not under as much stress. When you take away the jobs, and then you have the responsibility. Let's say in this case of the male, females have the same responsibility, but the male feels it's essential that they be responsible for the house and whatnot, and the wife. And, and when I was growing up, you know, taking care of the kids and. And it was a partnership. They both give the best they can. And that's why our generation, I'm a baby boomer. I, I'm assuming you are, and I don't want to you know, reference you if you're not in that. But we had two parents. We had in-laws. We had elders. We had grandparents who knew best. And that's frequently where we would go if there was a crisis because our, our grandparents and aunts and uncles frequently treat us better <laughs> in an argument than our own parents would. But we had a way of resolving issues to best we could. We cared about our neighborhood. We cared about each other. My mom was a secretary in a, a Baptist church, a First Christian church. She knew everyone, and she knew everyone's problems. And if there was someone who was having a rough time and had needed a plumber, she would call one of the congregants, go over there and help that person. So when you take away work and you don't provide them with a substitute that is equal, and there's no training for another career, you're just gone, then you're going to have a crisis in the family itself, 
then you're going to have a breakdown of the family, and then you're going to have children who unfortunately are not seeing the kind of inner family dynamics that help you through a rough time. And maybe the only person helping you through that rough time is a member of a gang. And I spoke with a lot of gang members when I was doing a report on the gangs. So I think we have to separate out someone who's got a $1,000 phone and $1,500 Nikes from what would happen if that kid grew up in a normal environment. But I think that we owe an enormous uh, responsible debt to all the families in America that were torn under and apart because our system was more interested in making a profit than the consequence of those who were the victims of it. That's my counterpoint. Well, um, the deindustrialization argument is a is a very respectable one, and has much to um, much to to argue for it. I, I would also say. I mean, let's just face it. Let's just not blame the greedy capitalists. Let's blame the consumers as well, uh, to the extent that we saw offshoring of of America's industrial base in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. That was in search of cheaper goods. And Americans, it seems to be an absolute biological wire, hard wiring that human beings will search for bargains. And uh, I... I Excuse me, one, let me just intercept one second. I'm sorry, I don't normally interrupt, but I fully concur. I've told this audience repeatedly. We had an America where small businesses dominated. Why do you think people love going to uh, an, a small community on the Hudson River, where the you know the the that feeling, the the small shops, the people you know and say hello to, that's what dominated. And you are right. We took a Schwinn bite. We we took uh, we took all the things we made and made well in the United States, and these were passed down generation generation. And we shipped them off to China. And now that bike, which would have cost you two hundred dollars, is brought back in and sold for a hundred dollars. You just put all the bike stores out of business. And the clothing, the same way. I was I was the nutritionist for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, helping with their health because they were sitting there in obese, eating candy as her. We, we got them all healthy. But in the process, I'm asking what's happening. She said, everything is shrinking because everything that we can do here and be paid a living wage for, they're doing in Bangladesh for 18 cents an hour. You can't compete against that. So 900 million car, uh, garments were brought in last year, including high-end garments. And Americans said, well, obsolescence. I'm going to buy this dress. If it tears, I'll just throw it away because it's so cheap. I absolutely concur on this issue with you, that it is the responsibility of each person to ask, where was this made? Was any slave labor used or uh, forced labor used that degraded another person, like your cell phone and your computer and your electric vehicle and a lot of other things? You take responsibility for that. And if you don't, you're part of the problem. So you can't. I'm not blaming it all on capitalism because I also believe in ethical capitalism. All right. I don't look at it as black and white. I believe I'm, I'm there are a lot, of lot of corporations that when they do something, they try to do it ethically. And there are those that don't care about that. So I would concur with you on that. We put ourselves into the box store market without realizing the consequences to the average person. Please continue. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm not going to put you on the spot. Uh, by now, I mean, everybody with, has been paying half attention, knows about globalization and offshoring. 
Uh, and I, you know, I'll just ask you as a, without asking for an answer, uh, do you use Amazon? And I do, I use Amazon. I, I will buy books on Amazon rather than going to a local bookstore because it's more convenient. And so I am complicit, but we all are complicit in the demise of bricks and mortar because it is more efficient. And, and again, like ethical capitalism, I'm not a libertarian, but I, I'm gonna take up my libertarian, well, pretend to be one here and say, arguably it is as ethical to provide ever cheaper goods to people so they have a greater range of spending. It makes their paycheck go further. And through trying to make production more efficient, which is using the price signal to find where can things be made most efficiently, and that does involve price of labor as well as inputs, uh, that that is as ethical as capitalism can be. But we'll put that aside. Um, I, I So anyway, you have articulated what is a respectable argument, which is that the problem in the black underclass is because of deindustrialization. William Julius Wilson has made that argument. Uh, and I, you know, I don't have the wisdom to fully refute it. I'm just going to put out some contrary facts without necessarily taking having a dog in the fight one way or the other. Uh, the 1960s was a time of very high employment. It was it was a very booming economy. And yet you saw the problems of the black underclass explode in the 1960s. You saw the gangs, you saw the drugs, you saw the breakdown of the family. Something else was going on there that with the rise of oppositional culture, uh, you saw 2008, you know, we had a recession. There was no increase in crime. I would say crime in general is not related to economic uh, necessity. These kids that are going spraying bullets across sidewalks, they're not doing it because they don't have enough food to eat. Nobody in America does, does not have enough food to eat. In fact, as you well know, and have, have been bravely trying to fight, our, our problem is obesity. Uh, and, and you may have the larger picture right, but I can say on a micro level, opportunities remain there. I, I, again, I am not an advocate for mass, low-skilled third world immigration. However, I will point out that another inner city community like the ones you have seen, South Central Los Angeles, uh, there was a wasteland of, of, of businesses, small businesses there. When the Hispanics moved in, they created businesses that before didn't exist. And so there's something beyond just large economic forces involved in a, a community's degree of economic activity. Uh, and that's we're running out of time. I know so. I I agree with part of what you said, and I will offer a different point of view. If if we looked at what it takes to keep a community whole and healthy, then we have to also look at quality of effort, at at the sense that we used to have. We don't today in all areas of meritocracy. I believe in meritocracy. I do not believe in equity. I believe giving everyone an opportunity, and for decades, not everyone had that opportunity, neither the black, the Hispanic, nor in the poor whites where I came from in Appalachia. You know, they had no entitlement. I know I know families that I used to uh, go up and fix their sewing machines, uh, and they didn't have electricity. 
Uh, and you think, how's that possible? This is the mid-1960s. Yes, that's true. But not everyone was equally entitled or at least benefiting from uh, the growth in our economy. So I would like to see all of the people who have historically been repressed but who have fought forward with their merits, being the best that they are, whether it's Tiger Woods or Oprah and, and Jay-Z, I would like to see all these people, I'm not condemning how they made their money at all, but why don't you all get together and show, go into the communities and say, we're here because we care about you, all right? We're not just out walking red carpets and you know going off on you know David Geffen's yacht or whoever you know some rich person. We're not flying to private on private planes to Davos to tell you about why you should have me, but because of global warming, the hypocrisy is palpable, right? So I would like to see those people because we don't have a few successful people of color in this country. We have millions, tens of millions. In fact, if you look at how many people actually survived succeeding, how many small businesses. Uh, why can't they be involved in communities? Why can't the rich and powerful be brought into the community instead of running away from it, running up to Beverly Hills or Fifth Avenue? I don't see them going back into the communities. Maybe that's just me. I was invited to into one of the poorest neighborhoods in the United States in, uh, in New Jersey and uh, in Newark, a charter school. A person came to me and says, we're very poor. All of my students and their families are all African-American. Would you help us? I said, sure. I went over there and got all the parents together, all the students, all the faculty. I said, I'm willing to help you all get healthy. And But you got to do it. If you have questions, ask me. And I brought a whole team with me from my Tri-State Medical Healing Center. I brought my doctors and Luan Panisi, holistic nurses. And I said, let's get rid of the diseases. Because what were the kids most concerned about? Not the school. The school was there to help them with no nonsense. They were concerned about their parents' health. Well, my mom is 300 pounds. She's got diabetes. She's on 20 medications. And I'm afraid she's going to die. Okay. One year later, everybody had lost weight. Everybody was healthy. We didn't have the diabetes, high blood pressure. We didn't have the obesity. Parents and children were working out together. The whole community was helping each other. They had a support system. I was supplying them with 18 wheelers of organic brown rice, every family, and, and beans, and nuts, and seeds, and vitamins, and organic produce. It was so successful that Cory Booker gave me a, a site, gave me one of these scrolls, you know, for helping the community, and then other charter schools. I went into public school. They didn't want the help. All right, that was the politics I saw, and it was permeable, and it was terrible. So I believe that we've got to get the people who are influencers, powerful people, respected people, athletes, television, authors, to go into the communities together and say, let us help you revitalize and repurpose, to bring back the best you could be as a community. I don't see that happening, but I believe that's one of the things we should be looking at as a solution. Your thoughts? I, I don't disagree with that. I, I think that's true. Uh, now, you probably, we may disagree. We saw what happened to Bill Cosby when he talked about fathers and the essential role of fathers in raising families. This is, you know, unrelated to any sex, me too type stuff. He was just absolutely vilified by 
the majority black elite community, but I think he was absolutely speaking the truth. I would say, you know, you're speaking to a certain extent about a top-down uh, effort, which is fine. It needs to be met by a bottom-up effort of real change in how people plan for the future, how, how parents raise their children. Uh, there's a, a deficit of parenting skills and knowledge there. Uh, and so I would also say if you want to revitalize communities, here's the thing you have to do, number one. Number one has to be policing, but you and I agree on that. You cannot bring in small businesses into a community where you worry about your employees getting held up at gunpoint or shot uh, and your merchandise being being stolen. So I, I, I would add to your vision for revitalizing inner city communities an absolutely unapologetic role for law enforcement. Um, but I, I would, I guess I would just put, I would add into your recipe a much stronger emphasis on uh, some kind of moral change that, that looks towards personal responsibility, uh, the responsibility of parents towards their children's academic involvement. You know, you don't, you don't turn, look away you know you find out are your are your children going to school are they taking their homework home are they studying for exams are they running the streets at night uh it's not just a question of lack of jobs the lack of jobs is really more of a of an effect of the social breakdown but but i agree i would love to see um more black leaders be honest instead we have you know these idiots like um I don't know. Is he baseball basketball guy that was that was going around in the post George Floyd um, mass psychosis about how blacks have to fear for their lives every time they go outside because of white people? A LeBron James, I think it was. I mean, this is insane. But Heather McDonald, thank you very much for coming on and sharing your points of view and the statistics you have to back them up. However, during the program, I have chosen not to interrupt you every time I heard you say something that I have a difference of opinion. That way, you would have not been able to get out the full context and in the full, the full measure of your thoughts. I'd like to share my response now. First and foremost, you, if I understood you correctly, you said that we have a very fair justice system, and in fact, you worked in that justice system. However, I believe that we have a completely corrupt justice system. We do not have one law and everyone has to abide by it. We have three tiers of justice. For the average person, uh, if they're caught with a little bit of drugs on them, uh, historically, uh, they can be arrested and under the Rockefeller laws spend seven years in jail. What kind of lack of humanity understood that you're going to disproportionately affect people of color and poor people living in poverty? And uh, therefore that was unjust. Why not get rid of all of our war on uh, drugs and have instead centers in every city in order to rehabilitate people and help them out? Why not expunge all the records of everyone who's used drugs and been convicted of that uh, to make them at least be able to repurpose their life without that stigma? That would be good. Secondly, we have a two-tier system with one more tier to go. And that two-tier system is if you're corporate America or very wealthy, you can commit a crime you're not going to do the time. I'll give you one example of this, and I could give you thousands of examples. In fact, I could give you hundreds of thousands of examples, and that is Merck, a major manufacturer. 
major pharmaceutical company, they created a drug called Vioxx for arthritis. They knew at the time they created it that it would increase the incidence of heart attack and stroke. And yet, even though warned by a doctor at the FDA that this was wrong, they went ahead and marketed it. They made about $12 billion. They were fined about $5 billion, and they were able to keep their ill-gotten gains. But 60,000 Americans minimally lost their lives. No one was arrested. So how is that justice system treating all these corporate white-collar criminals who commit hundreds of thousands of crimes and just pay a fine, no jail time? Well, that's not fair. And then you have the third level of justice. People who commit crimes against humanity where millions of people have died, tens of millions since 1945, with regime changes, spying on Americans, documented crimes, lying under oath, before Congress, the National Security Advisor, the director uh, of the National Security Agency, Clapper, and nothing happens. When was the last time anyone at the CIA, the FBI, uh, the National Intelligence Agency, Homeland Security, who committed crimes and can be proven to have committed crimes were held accountable, personally or the agency specifically? Not once. And so therefore, we don't have a good criminal system. Going further, why don't we take a look at uh, the one of those important groups out there, and they're trying to find if a person is innocent who's been convicted and sentenced to jail, the challenge against them. But more importantly, you talk about all the people who are black who go into prisons. Well, how many of them will go into prison if they could afford a good lawyer and also afford bail? So the rule is, and it's a game they play in the prison system, the justice system, that will plead out to a lesser offense. That way the city, the state, the FBI, whoever it is, can take credit for one more notch in their belt. And then, unfortunately, a person goes to jail who shouldn't have. So why don't you add that? And then on your comments about, uh, you know, stop and search or search and frisk, well, you made a statement that is completely inaccurate, in my opinion. And the statistics show that the vast majority of people who were stopped and searched had no weapons on them and therefore should not have been stopped. They were profiled. How many people driving of color have been stopped only because of their color? It has happened beyond countless, and yet that is still continuing. What kind of trauma does that occur in a person who is stopped, who fears going down a street because they'll be stopped, who might be in a neighborhood above where they live, and culturally or socially, and is, is stopped? Happens all the time in Be- Beverly Hills. And yet how many people in Beverly Hills are doing something illegal using drugs? They're never held accountable. So what would happen if you suddenly reversed it and you started stopping everyone coming out of Wall Street and testing them for cocaine? Want to talk about an epidemic of criminal behavior that is never uh, never uh, attached to them? That's Wall Street. But those are mostly, mainly white, upper-middle-class people. What about if you did the same thing at Lincoln Center or on Broadway shows or the Met Gala? You stopped and did the same thing. We're looking to see if you have any contraband or any uh, illegal weapons. It would traumatize people. The reality is that because of racist policies of the uh, different administrations, including Giuliani, we traumatized a lot of innocent people. The vast majority were innocent. Also, you talk about the crimes in the street, the crimes in the neighborhood. Yes, there is a terrible situation of black-on-black violence. But however, why don't you add in how much non-violence you have in the same community. How many people will not go in and tear open a store and vandalize it and loot it? 
only a tiny percentage of a population, including a minority population, commits crimes. So we are not dealing in equal, uh, equal measure. Also, you said that poverty wasn't the issue. I think the reason that we have systemic uh, uh, crime in some areas, in some people, both Caucasian in Appalachian and other places, the Rust Belt, and in minority communities, is because of poverty. All those major metropolitan areas like Detroit and Camden, New Jersey, had full employment from 1940 to 1975. People were living a good quality life, no debt, minimal crime, and they were living peacefully. So what happens is the white owners of corporate America out, outsource all that work with no compensation, no retraining, nothing. So what if you're a person of color and you've been tending to your family, you've been a good, responsible parent, and now you don't have employment, you have poverty, and you don't even have food to put on the table. That leads to alcoholism, leads to drug abuse, leads to domestic violence, leads to some people going to prison. Why doesn't the American, uh, the American community with the wealth, why doesn't it consider that as a problem and all the enhancing problems that come from that? So yeah, we got full employment across America and gave a living wage so one person could stay at home. And also, why don't you acknowledge the idea that two parents who are working cooperatively are better than one parent or the state? And also, what about the profit profiting off private prisons where you have to keep 96, 95 percent of the beds filled? That's going to entice people to arrest people who shouldn't be there. So when I look at George Floyd, I'm not looking at one person. You focused upon him as the right and conservatives do about his criminal background. Forget him for a moment. He should not have been killed. He was killed. And the other officers should have known that. After all, didn't they also kill similarly uh, the gentleman selling some illegal cigarettes and they took his life? I mean, this is ridiculous. We have, we have to go through our entire justice system from the police training and who gets to be a police officer and their violent behaviors, and weed those out and start over and do it right. But if you think that that was just one spontaneous uh, outburst, it wasn't. That had been building for decades of seeing one person after another after another mil adversely treated by the police and the justice system. And so the African-American community, but a lot of the Caucasian community, myself included, was outraged that this was allowed to happen. What's with the training? What's with the supervision? What's with the retraining? So people don't do that. They don't sit with their knee on someone's neck, uh, convicted of crime or not. We don't have extrajudicial killings accepted in the United States, and yet that to me was exactly what it was. So we've created social trauma. We've created a stigma that if you're not white, successful, and affluent or celebrity, Somehow you don't count. You're invisible. But the system profits from you. Take out the profit from the justice system and you'll see a completely different idea. And why not have classes that are free to the public who have been traumatized so they don't have to walk around with that stigma? Those are just some thoughts. Thank you all for taking your time to listen. I'm Gary Nall.
brother, brother, brother There's far too many of you dying You know 